Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In this Mother's Day episode, we will be speaking with several guests who will be telling us stories about their special moms. Our guests today are Ron Kustis from New Jersey, in honor of his mom, Mary, Wendy Vanderhart from Massachusetts, in memory of her mom, Barbara, Gustavo Lanata from Budapest, Hungary, in honor of his mom, Nellie, brothers Anthony and Neil Lentine from New Jersey and Florida, respectively, in memory of their mom, Anna, and lastly, my grandson, Hudson Paworski from New Jersey, in honor of his mom, Jennifer. We hope this episode will inspire you to think of your moms this coming week. I'd now like to welcome Ron Kustis to our show. Hey, James. Good to see you again. Well, Ron, we're really glad to have you because I know you have a really wonderful story to tell us about your mom. And I'd like to begin that with asking you the question, where was your mother born? Where did she grow up? And what can you tell us about her family? My mom was very unceremoniously born in 1929 when her mother was on the way to the communal outhouse on 6th Street in Newark. She never quite made it to the outhouse. She had pains. She turned around, came back to the kitchen, and gave birth to my mom, Maria Michalina Delizio, on the kitchen table, the family's kitchen table where they had all their Italian meals. Oh, you're Um, kidding me. No, that's true. And I remember that kitchen table because they never changed it for years. But a weird thing happened when it came time to fill out the birth certificate. Well, whoever wrote her name on the birth certificate transposed her name. And so they renamed her Maria Michalina instead of Michalina Maria, which, you know, maybe worked out better in the long run for everybody because she's only known as Mary. But let me tell you, a few years ago, I went to open up a bank account. The sales rep, she's asked, what's your mother's name? So I said, well, my mother's name is Maria Michalina Delizio. And then I just happened to mention, but it was transposed at birth, just a small talk, and it was supposed to be the other way around. Well, this girl turned white as a ghost. And then she started giving me stink eye, like, and I'm like, what did I say wrong? <laughs> I said, I just want to open up a bank account and you ask that question. And then I hear her mumble under her breath, my mom's name is Michalina Maria Delizio. But now I know why she's giving me stink eye because she thinks I'm a long lost brother that her mother never told her about. So I'm sitting there frantic. I'm like, I have to open up this account. So I call my mother. I said, mom. I'm trying to open up a bank account here. And this woman claims like her mother's name is Michalina Maria. So my mom's like, ask her if her mother was known as Chubby. First of all, she's giving me stink eye as it is. (laughs) So I'm like, was your mother's nickname Chubby? And she says, oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) So they ended up being cousins. So The sales rep was very relieved that she didn't have another brother out there that she didn't know about. But my mom was actually the firstborn out of all the kids. There were five children, and literally they were 14 years apart, her and her youngest sister. And she basically ran the household. She made, you know, the lunches, well, 
what they considered lunch back then was like a baked potato to bring to school. But she used to tell me that as even as a young girl, growing up in Newark, and I grew up in Kearney, we had stoops in front of our houses, you know, so you always hung out in front of the stoops. So she would always have a book, go sit on the stoop and just read all day long. She's currently in a nursing home where there is a huge library. Literally, there has to be a thousand books in this library. She has read every single book in this library. And the reason I know this is because she'll say, Ron, next time you come, get me a book from the library. And she puts her initials in every book. She'll read a book a day to this day. Pretty amazing. Wow, that's terrific. Now, you said your mom was born in 1929. Yes. 29. She would have been a child in the 30s. Did she have any recollections, even vague, of the Depression years? Yes. Well, you know what? To them, it was the norm. Being poor was just the way it was. You know, I know all the kids, they all had shoes, but my uncle used to tell us the first time he saw a kid in his classroom who had shoes that didn't flap when they walked because like all the stitching would come. He thought like, what's wrong with your shoe? Because he thought all shoes flapped, you know? So it was a whole different world back then. But to them, it was the norm. Surprisingly enough, all the kids played an instrument. You know, my mom played the piano. My uncle played the, the clarinet. So there's old pictures of all the kids playing together. Even though economically they were not well off, would you say that she had a happy childhood? Yeah, it was happy, but it was very um, work-oriented, if that makes any sense. Because there were always chores to be done and always the house to be taken care of while going to school. Probably say it wasn't fun, but it was okay. Now, your mom was a voracious reader. Did she pursue a career? Yeah, actually, surprisingly, I did not know this. My mother went to girls' vocational school in Newark to learn how to sew. That was high school <laughs> back then. Okay. Um, but she actually did graduate college. She graduated the National Bible Institute of New York City. She was always big on education. What did she plan on doing with that education? Well, she always worked her entire life, but never in vocational jobs. Like she always worked to supplement my father's income because she was too busy being a mother. But she always taught because of her background in the Bible or theology. She was always the one who taught Sunday school at church. So she used it in that way. Ah, terrific. Now, Ron, you mentioned your dad. How did your mom and dad meet? Oh, well, that's a fun story. Firstly, my dad went on a date with my mom's best friend. <laughs> it never ends well, and it didn't. <laughs> so my mom's friend told my mom that he was the rudest person and most disrespectful man she's ever met in her entire life. But my mom didn't really know him. But at the time, my mom was youth director at the First Italian Baptist Church in Newark. And my father was the youth director of the First Baptist Church in Bloomfield. And they once had group meeting together and they met in Bloomfield for a group function. My father, he'll say it was love at first sight. He saw my mom, that was it. My mom, not so much. <laughs> my mom's like, this is the man who is very rude to my best friend. So my dad asks her out on a date. 
And so my mom only said yes for the sole purpose to tell him off. <laughs> and so she goes on a date with my dad. He turns out to be the perfect gentleman. And so the next day, my mom's friend calls my mom and says, did you tell him off for me? And my mom's like, he's perfect. <laughs> and not far after, they got married and 65 years of marriage, they're still together. Wow. What year were your parents married? Oh, yeah. It had to be like 56 or something. Yeah. Okay. Close enough. So, Ron, how many siblings do you have? Oh, this is where things get interesting. Because <laughs> I always say there were three and I was the middle child. I have an older brother and a younger sister. We're all a year apart from each other. But that's very misleading because my parents were foster parents. Oh. Which made for a very <laughs> interesting yeah. life growing up. Because my mom, in 1959, she actually read an article in the Newark Star Ledger about a foster mother who beat her foster child to death. Oh, my God. And it stuck in my mom's mind. And she vowed that that would never happen again. Mm -hmm. So even before she had us kids, they took in foster kids. And the really great thing is they took in foster kids from every walk in life. In fact, her first foster children were teenagers. They had no kids of their own in the state brings them teenagers with all the issues that they bring. Um, but we've also had kids straight from the hospital brought to us. Oh. And every ethnic, every race, every physical handicap, every mental handicap, my mother just made sure she like opened her house to everyone. It was normal for us, which was kind of cool. Wow, that is really, really spectacular that your mom and, and your dad would be opening their homes to so many children who were in need of a place to live and that you were able to actually grow up in that environment. So you had the three biological children and this extended family of brothers and sisters who became your family. Oh, yes. I think the most we ever had at one time was seven additional. So yeah, we always had a full house. And an interesting thing, too, is because of that article, which started this whole ball rolling, many years later, there's my mother on the front page of the Newark Star Ledger being, I think at the time she set the record for having the most foster children in the state of New Jersey. So it was kind of interesting how things totally turned around. Oh, that is, that is wonderful. Now, Ron, let me ask you, do you stay in touch with any of the foster brother and sisters you had? Uh, you know, it's kind of weird because, you know, my parents moved around so much and most of them actually ended up being adopted. Back then, everything was sealed. So they were all sealed yeah. adoption. However, some of them would remember my mother's phone number because they never changed it. So as they grew up, they would contact my mom and my dad and say, hey, remember me? <laughs> and of course, my mom remembers everybody. So she's like, come on over. And I mean, there was this, these two sisters, God bless them. They were actually my first two older sisters growing up. They were already teenagers and I was like born into them. So I always thought it was cool having two older sisters. And they found that my parents were living in Tom's River at the time. And so they contacted my parents and said, hey, my parents always had the foster children address them as Aunt Mary and Uncle Marty only because they knew they weren't going to be there forever and they would probably be adopted. So they had to create a little mental separation for the children's part. So these two grown women now come over. 
And right before we start talking, my mom says, should we tell them the truth? And I'm thinking, what? There's something, <laughs> there's something that has to be said with the truth. And so the two women were like, Aunt Mary, we have no memory whatsoever of our lives as teenagers until we got to your house. So we just have two questions. Why did you give us up? And what were our lives like if you knew before we got to your place? And so my father was like, well, do you remember there were no doors in our house whatsoever? They were like, yeah, we remember there were no doors. He goes, well, the reason was there were no doors, as soon as the door closed, both girls as teenagers would just go into screaming fits. They also had a brother that we also took into, and all three of them would just go ballistic. Well, my parents explained to them that they were actually like, extremely abused and they were actually kept in closets for their entire life oh oh it was it's sickening james it's like one of those things from criminal minds they were only fed from the little crack underneath the opening to the door and the only time the doors were ever open was when they would be sexually abused by the parents and so and my parents are telling them that and they're hearing this for the first time and i'm sitting there going my mind's like blown But, you know, by the time the day was over, they were like, wow, Aunt Mary, this answered so many questions. It was so hard to hear, but it all started making sense how they turned out the way they were, what they were afraid of. Kind of a really good healing process. Everybody must have been bowled over. Oh, yeah. I was like, I couldn't even eat my food. I bet. What an experience for you growing up in a home that you were sharing with so many other foster siblings and biological siblings. On top of that, what kind of memories do you have growing up? Holiday traditions or vacations or just day-to-day life that were memorable? Food, maybe? <laughs> let me tell you, food. I'm from an Italian household, but let me tell you something. My mom was the worst Italian cook on the planet. <laughs> I'm serious. I grew up on TV dinners because my mama thought this is the greatest thing in the world. Her mother slaved for hours over gravy and meatballs and sausage, and (laughs) she was having none of it. But every Sunday after church, it was ravioli dinner, get the good bread, bring it back home, and we'd have ravioli dinner. Um, But that being said, at least it wasn't Chef Boyardee. (laughs) It was the frozen ones from ShopRite, which is okay. But my mom never made sauce or gravy in her entire life. So she would always use ragu, the worst jar sauce in the world. And so one day my grandpa comes over. Now he's from the old country, so he knows what good Italian food is like. So my mom makes her ravioli meal. He looks up and he goes, Mary, whose gravy is this? This can't be yours. And that day we ran out of ragu and my mom had to get Aunt Millie's sauce. But it also was in a jar, which is like maybe a step above ragu. And so my mom's like, oh, it's Aunt Millie's gravy. Now we have an Aunt Millie who makes a really mean gravy. And my grandpa's like, I knew it couldn't have been yours, Mary. This is too good. (laughs) <laughs> too good. We never told him it was from a jar. <laughs> but we were always the house where everybody came over on our block. So everyone knew each other. There were about 50 kids who lived on this one block. And we were like the house that was always open. It was like my mother, she was known as Mrs. K. Even um, right when she graduated college too, what she would do was, well, she was still living in Newark going back 
a little bit. She always had a heart for all the kids on her block because they were all dirt poor. And what she would do is every weekend, she'd pack all the kids in their car and she would take them down the Jersey Shore. It was the first time these kids ever saw the ocean, but those kids never forgot. So they would see my parents as an adult and say, wow, you introduced me to the Jersey Shore and they would know the exact summer and the year that it happened. Did you often have holidays like Christmas or Thanksgiving at your house? Yeah, Christmas we always had in the house. We always celebrated Christmas Day, even though I know a lot of Italians celebrate Christmas Eve. And even then, too, like we would have all our kids and we would actually make all the decorations for the Christmas tree. My mother would get construction paper and she'd sit us all down and we'd make those kind of lanterns. And then the garland was made out of those loops, you know, that we glue together. And we did snowflakes out of white paper. And that's what we would use on the tree. Then every Christmas day, we'd open our gifts under the tree. But Easter, you know, my parents, they didn't hide the eggs. They hid the baskets. And I remember this one year, we overheard our parents talking how they hid the baskets in the best spot and the kids would never find it, right? So... Our bedrooms were on the second floor and you came down this long staircase and you were in the living room and my parents had a TV put up against the wall and they hid all the baskets behind the TV, but we could see direct sight coming down the stairs, all these Easter baskets. So we were like two seconds, we had all our Easter baskets and my mother's like, I thought we found the perfect hiding space. I was like, no. Did your mom deal out TV dinners for Easter? I don't recall. We probably had ham out of a can and, <laughs> and raviolis, I'm sure. Ron, how would you describe your mom's character? Wow, that's a good question. I'll say this. When people first meet her, she can come across a little bit on the cold side. She's not one of those Italian mamas that run and give you a big hug and like the double kisses on the cheeks. She was always a little distanced. And I think that was a byproduct of being a foster mother where she wanted to treat all of us as equal. So I think it was a defense mechanism for her not to show too much outwardly love, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Just because it's bad enough when children are adopted, they're yanked out of you, which is, believe me, that was never a fun experience. Oh, no. um, and I still remember, like, I've always hated birthdays, especially my birthday, and I never knew why. And then my mom just tells me out of the blue one day, well, Ron, don't you remember your third birthday? We had a cake for you, and all you did was sit and cry under the table. And I was like, well, what was I doing crying under the kitchen table? It was because my parents always had a big party for the foster children when they were adopted. Oh. So here I am thinking I was going to disappear the next day because my parents were having a party oh. for me. So it's kind of strange how those little things get in your psyche. That makes sense. So your mom was, someone might say, oh, she's not as warm as I might think. But once you get to know your mom. Oh, yeah. She would go to bat for you like no one else. And very much a fighter for me too. I remember I came from a very small junior high into this massive senior high school mm -hmm. and I knew no one. So of course I was picked on in one of my classes, but I actually told my mom and she went right to the school. And the next day, all my classes 
were changed without even batting an eye. I don't know what she told them, but it was the best thing for me. So he's a very good advocate. God bless her. It's really through her actions. Yes. You see her real character because you could have somebody who's like, oh, they say the right thing. They come across very warm, but maybe not necessarily be in your court or your corner like she is and was for you and for the foster children that she and your dad raised. Oh, yes, definitely. Actions always spoke louder than words. That's kind of how we grew up. That's the main thing. So how has having your mother as your mother impacted your life the most? I'm going to bring it back to the whole foster care situation. When I was a teenager, I asked her once, Mom, why do you keep taking in other people's children? And she sat me down. (laughs) So she opens up the Bible to the book of Matthew. And then she starts reading the part where it says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. And they asked, when did we ever do this to you or for you? And Jesus answered, as you fed and clothed the least of these brothers you did to me. And that kind of, even as 12 years old, clicked in my head that even though these people and children come from totally different walks of life, totally different backgrounds, totally different ethnicities, that we're all kind of one. And like you can see Christ in everyone and what you do actually matters. So everything you do has a purpose. Your mom's sitting you down that time. What a teaching moment for you. Yeah, exactly. So one last question for you. What do you think your mom wants her legacy to be? I think her legacy would be to treat everybody with mutual respect, regardless if they don't look the same way as you, if they didn't grow up the same way as you, that everyone has value. Amen. The thing is, you know, treat everybody the same and it goes a long way and it's a blessing for everybody. It's great. Well, that's wonderful. And your mom and dad now are, how old are they now? My mom will be 92 in July and my father will be 89 next week, actually. Oh, younger man. She married. Uh, Oh, yes. (laughs) My mom knew what she was going after. (laughs) Let me tell you something. So once a week they do a Skype facility has them Skype so they can talk to each other. So last week I go over there. I'm like, dad, like how can you not Skyping with mom? Oh, I don't want to hear a bark orders at me again. She goes, I'm, t- he said, I'm taking the day off. <laughs> oh, I'm okay. You still have your sense of humor and mom is still in control. <laughs> Ron, this has been amazing. I'm so glad that you've been willing to share the story about your mom and to be honoring her for Mother's Day. I just wish the very best for her and your dad. And I pray that this uh, pandemic will ease up enough soon that they can be together again in the very near future. Thank you very much. And I'm hoping so too. Thanks, Ron. All right. Thank you, James. I'd now like to welcome Wendy Vanderhart to our show. Hello, Wendy. Hello, James. It's very nice to have you. I just want to ask you, first of all, can you tell us something about where your mom was born and raised and a little about her background? 
Yeah, and I just really appreciate this invitation to talk about my mom because she's just such a great influence in my life and we miss her dearly. My mom was born in New York City, which was also the same location where I was born, but she did her primary growing up in Feasterville, Pennsylvania, which is kind of suburban Philadelphia. Never heard of Feasterville, Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's a lovely little town. She was close to some major shopping areas that she took full advantage of. And she is the youngest of two children. She had an older brother. And, you know, it was not an easy childhood for her. It's remarkable the person that was shaped by the situation that she was in. Her parents loved her. My grandparents were wonderful people in their own right, but it was an alcoholic household. Mm. And that is a significant piece of her journey in a positive way, because she took the challenge and frankly, the trauma of some of that and turned it to good. That's really saying something because it could have turned the other way, couldn't it? That's right. I think it informed her parenting. It certainly informed her faith life. It informed the person she became. So, you know, you could say that it was in spite of that, but I think that there were pieces of resilience in her that were shaped on that anvil, if you will. I don't know that she would have been the person she became had she not found the way to endure that. It's just a, it's a piece of her story that you know, she wasn't shy about talking about it, but I don't think she would lead with that. I'm just always mindful of the things that happen in our lives and the ways they shape us for good or ill. And of course, the in-between. Yes. Do you know if there were other people that she may have reached out to during those times when she was younger who may have mentored her or gave her some different perspectives or other role models that she may have leaned into? It's an excellent question. I know she had a very good high school friend. Her name was Nancy. And I don't know if Nancy, that friendship in particular, was supportive of my mom in that. But, you know, my mom met my dad at a very young age. So she probably would claim their relationship is very stabilizing and life-giving in her own life. They were married. She was This is the way she always talked about it. She was a day 19 when they got married and she completed one semester of college. She couldn't stand being apart from him. I didn't know this as a kid, but she would always say that she majored in letter writing. I actually thought as a young person that that was a real major, but it really was, she was just writing letters to my dad. That's all she was doing at college. So she came home after a semester, but I think She did have a boyfriend in high school who was a Baptist. And so I think faith, her faith life would be an anchor piece that helped her through. She didn't talk with me a whole lot about that piece, but from the rest of her life, that's the story that I would tell from it. I understand. And your dad is a pastor. He is a pastor. That's true. So am I. (laughs) you a pastor as well so that seems to run in the family (laughs) it does because my mom was a minister too my mom was a minister of music her pastoral presence and her gift of faith just the ways in which 
she prayed. People loved her prayers before choir. She was a minister herself. Well, I want to talk about her musical talent. Your mom was a very talented musician, and it was primarily the organ. Is that correct? It wasn't the organ until she met my dad. It was the piano. Uh, so she was a classically trained pianist, years and years of lessons. And that provided her some leadership capacity too, because she accompanied the chorus in her high school, you know, giving recitals and all those kinds of expectations that get uh, laid on that performance, I think also was very shaping of her. She could be comfortable in front of people. It was often a supportive role. You know, she wasn't the sole person that was performing, but certainly there were eyes on her and she learned how to do that. She was really gifted as a music reader. You could plop a piece of music down in front of her and she could start playing it. So she wasn't the kind of musician or piano player that played from ear, but you put, put a piece of music down in front of her and she could pick it right up. Did your mom pass that musical talent down to you? Well, I sing and I sing alto parts. So I, you know, I learned singing harmony uh, as a result of being her daughter. She did try to teach us piano, but it's not the best practice to try and teach your own child something like that, especially if they don't practice. Ah, uh, yes. I really, really regret that because it sure would be a handy gift to have in my ministry. And just, I would love to be able to sit down and just play things. I can read the top bar pretty well. The bottom bar is baffling. There's music in my life. Let's put it that way. I know your dad is a big lover of music. So I'm sure that that was a, a continued to be a really strong bonding experience for the two of them, among other things, certainly. There's not many people that can say that they grew up with a pipe organ in their home. Hmm. The pipes up in the loft, the console on the main floor at the time they brought it in, the blower was in the basement. I mean, the whole house had organ in it when it was first installed. And my mom would practice and would play for my dad. He was just in heaven when that was happening. I bet. So I'm going to bring you back to your childhood to your earlier days. What are some of your fondest memories of your mom when you were growing up? You know, I'm going to pull in some some thoughts from my sister Jenny on this one too, because this is a shared thing. My mom had ways of making us feel special. She had a way of making us each feel like we were her favorite. And she would say that, but she would say it in a way that, for instance, I'm the oldest of the four of us. And she would say that I was her favorite oldest child. You know, well, she could say that each of us was a favorite when you phrase it that way, right? Yes. Yeah. She was really smart. She also worked really hard to make sure that she treated us all fairly. I know at Christmas, she took real pains to make sure that we each had the same amount of presents to open on Christmas morning. We were assigned which part of the dishwasher we had to unload so that it was fairly, the labor was fairly distributed. So she she took some pains to treat us all the same. And 
the ways that she would also express that were around our birthdays. We could say what we wanted for our birthday dinner, what kind of birthday cake we wanted. And my sister Jenny reminded me that in the clothes that she made for us, there was a label, you know, made especially for you by Barbara Vanderhart. Just those kinds of practices. She just made us feel like we were the one, even though there were four of us pining for her attention and her love and affection. Yeah. Now, when you, you mentioned about Christmas, do you have any particular special events or times of year where your family would get together and your mom played a big role in that get together? Well, mom played a big role every day in the care and the keeping she gave to preparing food. She loved to eat. <laughs> and in fact, in later years, inevitably in one of our phone conversations, she would say, are we talking about food? Because she loved to eat. She loved food and she was an excellent cook and really honed her craft and her shortcuts within that craft because, you know, it had to be really good, but it had to be easy too. So over the years, our holiday gatherings, Christmas were important. Thanksgiving became outsized, but around Christmas, we had some real ways that we marked Christmas. So we went to church and I'm thinking about our years in Terrytown, New York. My dad and mom served the old Dutch church of Sleepy Hollow, which had no heat or electricity in that building. And the Christmas Eve services there were really special because they were candlelit and fireplace warmed. And my mom played the organ. It was a pump organ because there was no electricity. There was no source of wind for the organ except her pumping feet. <laughs> so wow. people came for the nostalgia of that kind of setting for worship. So there was an 8 p.m. service and there was an 11 p.m. service. And we ate dinner in between the 8 p.m. service and the 11 p.m. service. We then would also between that eight o'clock and 11 o'clock, bring all the presents that my mom had hidden somewhere that were wrapped and bring them down under the Christmas tree. In the morning, we would have breakfast. We wouldn't open presents until we had breakfast. We would open presents either in birth order or reverse birth order. You know, we would switch between that. And the final piece of Christmas, she would have one gift for each of us that was from Sander, Claus. Santa Claus? Who's Santa Claus? Well, we were not allowed to believe in Santa Claus because that would take away from the real, you know, story of Christmas, Jesus' birth, uh, you know, God coming into the world at that time. But there was kind of a playful name that she came up for Santa Claus, Santa Claus, that would just be kind of a, a little goofy gift would come from Santa Claus. <laughs> Oh, I can't even tell you how that tradition began, but she continued that. Oh, that's wonderful. Were there any memories you have of vacations that you took together? So my mom was not actually a big fan of travel. The one vacation, the one traveling that we did, and it was while I was pretty young, was we would drive from New York to Iowa. And we would spend a good time on the farm in Iowa that my dad grew up in. We had little jaunts to my other grandparents that lived in New Jersey, but we didn't take any 
real trips, you know, maybe to Sturbridge Village in Massachusetts, but more local. But once they started building a home in rural New Jersey, we went there every weekend and we spent the entire summer there. So it's not as if we didn't do some things together as a family. We did a lot together as a family because every Friday afternoon at three o'clock, we piled in the car. We came home Sunday morning, piled in the car by I think 7 a.m. because my mom had to get the choir together. My dad had to preach. So from Friday afternoon through early Sunday morning, we were in Newton, New Jersey, Stillwater, New Jersey, at a lovely home that they built, an A-frame cedar home on four acres of land. And you mentioned that Thanksgiving's became sort of outsized. I know that I have heard that there were pretty big Thanksgiving bashes at that house with many people and a ping pong tournament. Indeed. I think the biggest crew that we had for Thanksgiving was 34 people, 26 or seven of them that slept in the house, <laughs> kids on arrow beds and that kind of thing. We have a lot of traditions around Thanksgiving, both the foods that we would have, but also, as you were alluding to, a ping pong tournament that has a trophy that everybody wants to have their name on. For many years, we did a Yankee Christmas gift swap. You know, the one where you get a number and you choose, but it could be taken away from you. Maybe some trading. That was a big tradition. The kind of desserts that we would have, we would have snicks and snacks. And then on that weekend, the University of Michigan football game against Ohio State would happen. So we would have a lot built up around the game. We would play games. We would play Uno, we would play Quiddler. Some of us would play Scrabble because that was really my, that was my mom's game was Scrabble. She was a Scrabble, a Scrabble champ. She would beat the computer on a regular basis and she's very competitive. She wanted to win. Mm -hmm. I lost in Uno against her on several occasions. Yeah, she had a lot of competition in her both in, in terms of games and she liked to be right. She liked to be right about things. And she often was. And when she was, she would remind you that she was right. <laughs> I will never forget that. Oh. Well, <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a trait I share with her. So we would have uh, okay. some competition ourselves, but you know. <laughs> oh, that's terrific though. You lost your mom about, was it about Four years ago now, Wendy? It'll be five in June. Yep, sadly, she had a glioblastoma brain tumor that she lived with for 22 months. The location where it was in her brain, it brought out the sweetest parts of her. Hmm. It also affected a part of her brain that lowered her inhibitions. So you could be surprised by some things that she would say. She was always a truth teller anyway, but she used to be a little more coy about the way she would tell the truth, but then it just, it came out. Out it came. I wanted to ask you, how would you describe how having Barbara Vanderhart as your mom impacted your life? And you want me to talk about this without crying, right? 
you can cry. It's okay. <laughs> you wouldn't be the first person to cry on, on one of our podcasts. You know, I, I don't always say this out loud, but my mom gave me life. She birthed me. She also saved my life. So there's a way in which I think I might not be here, uh, both from the birthing perspective, but also from the saving perspective, if it wasn't for her. In the year 2000, my previous marriage, my spouse left at the time that coincided with a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis for myself. It was a really, really hard time. And the reason I'm here on the other side of that, in large part, is due to my mom. I can think of one specific instance, but a longer gift that she gave me. On one particular hard night, she and my dad were on the phone with me. They were in New Jersey. I was in Massachusetts. And they read Romans chapter 8 to me. And she came up uh, shortly thereafter and stayed with me for a couple of weeks and just helped me get myself back together. But after that, she called me every night. She called me every night for two years. Because she and I talked, I always had companionship in a really lonely time. So she was a fierce mother. It was both comforting and kind of uh, made me laugh at myself and laugh at the situation when she would talk about my former spouse as that despicable woman. <laughs> <laughs> she just gave me permission to have the feelings that I had, but that was also uh, indicative of her bear cub kind of mothering. Oh yeah, she wasn't you know, fooling around. Yeah, she was a fierce defender. When I ask people questions about how people impacted their lives, when you said that you didn't think you would be here for, for two reasons. One, that she birthed you, and second of all, that at a very big crisis time in your life, well, she and your dad, you know, they read scripture to you, and then she called you every night for two years. She wanted to make sure you had a lifeline, that you were loved deeply. What better tribute could you give to a mom than to tell her, tell people that she saved your life? Yep. Lifeline. Yeah. Lifeline really in the dual nature of that, that phrase really, really describes her and is a big part of missing her too. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of people who miss your mama. Oh yeah. We still do. We just remembered going up to your house up in Stillwater and we, we called it the Dutch wonderland and all my kids, <laughs> we would always go up there and, and your mom would be something amazing cooking. She would put, these enormous portions on your plate. Oh, yeah, enormous portions. <laughs> and then she would destroy us in Uno. <laughs> that was the cost of the meal. Wendy, I want to ask you one last question. What would you say your mom would have wanted her legacy to be? Mm. You know, James, when I was thinking about that question that you, and I thank you for giving me questions ahead of time to ponder about her. It made me think back to what I said about her in her funeral, which was a really hard thing to do, you know, to summarize such a full life and a life that had so much impact on so many people. What I talked about in the funeral was her last Facebook post. The last Facebook post that she wrote was Christmas Day, uh, 2015. 
the way the tumor was acting, you know, she kind of stepped away from social media and her capacity was changing. But on Christmas day, she just sent out this greeting of, I'm not going to get the words right, but she basically wanted people to know Jesus and know the love of Jesus. If I imagine what she hoped her legacy would be, that that people knew something of the, the love of Jesus through her. Wonderful words. Thank you, Wendy. Your mom was just a very uh, amazing, courageous woman, and she was courageous through her illness and always kind. She always treated us with such warmth and grace and friendship, and you know, we miss her. And I just want to thank you so much as her oldest child and representing your siblings to be with us and just share just a little glimpse of the life of a wonderful woman, Barbara. Thank you, James. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be concrete in my memories of her. Thanks again. I'd now like to welcome Gustavo to our show. Hi, Gus. Well, hello, Mr. Gardner. Always a pleasure, and it's quite an honor to be here. Thank you. I'm very excited to hear the story about your mom. I met her more than 50 years ago. Thank you for taking the time to tell us about her. My pleasure. She doesn't know I'm doing this, otherwise she'd be very embarrassed. Fortunately, she's far away. She can't give me the reprimand that I would need. So yes, my mom, it's Nelly Emilia Delepiane Lanata. People who know her closely call her Gigi. And of course, to me, it was always mom or mommy. Actually, mommy is what I always use. Well, I'm going to refer to her as your mom from now on, because I don't think I could handle all those names. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to start off, Gus, by asking you, where was your mom born? And what do you know about her background? Well, it's interesting that you ask, because until very recently, I didn't know that much. As you know, we moved around a lot. So my closest family actually is a family from Argentina, but they're not related to us. But to my mom, she's from Italy, from the Liguria region, which is in the northwest section of Italy, Sicily, Naples. That's the complete opposite end of where my family is from. She was born actually outside of Genova. So she started out in a mountainous region, uh, Bolsaneto. You know those old stories that they used to say, I had to walk up five miles both ways uphill. Her actual walk was about five kilometers, which is only about three miles. And she never said she had to walk (laughs) up both ways. She would make it very clear. Her first school was a real country school. And I had the pleasure of actually going and seeing that school just three years ago. I had never known where she went to school. And one day she came to visit me in Italy and we got in a car with one of my cousins and said, we got a surprise for you. And then we drove into higher up into the mountains and there's this little building. And I said, what's this? Well, that's where I started my primary school. Later on, they moved into the city of Genova, into a quartieri, a neighborhood, called Piazza Corvetto. Now, the ironic thing about this is that I ended up having an office 20 meters from where my mother lived in Genova. That was not planned in any way. And that's really where I found out where my mother lived. So in my household, my mother 
would speak Genovese. She spoke Italian. My dad spoke Italian, but he also spoke some Milanese. All right. And today, most people speak Italian. And in fact, if you move there, there's an expectation that you should pick up some Italian. Now you had an office very nearby where your mother grew up. So can you take us from there? Sure. During this course of time, Mussolini becomes the leader of Italy. So I started asking my mother here and there about that. And she didn't say much for many reasons. But I found out that she was one of, and, and I pray to God I get this right, Balila girls. When you went to school, there were the Mussolini, similar to the Hitler Youth. It's not something you necessarily <laughs> applied for. It was something that you were expected to participate in. And the intriguing thing about this is that my mother kept those books, and I've used them to study Italian. But among the things it had in it was how to dress, how you should address your adults, how you should address your seniors, and of course, how you should address El Duce, okay, which was Mussolini. As you can imagine, there were people who were pro-Mussolini, people who were against Mussolini. And my grandfather rounded up his family and moved to America. So he went to America, and to them, America was not the United States, it was Argentina. And to this day in Latin America and myself, we consider America a whole continent. And instead of going to Buenos Aires, he went to Santa Fe. One thing, Gustavo, so you're saying that Mussolini is coming to power at this time, he's in power, and is this the 1930s at this point when your mother was brought to Argentina? It's around that time period, yes. Got it. But he did decide to take his family to Argentina. So he felt yeah. there was something there that he didn't have for his family in Italy. Oh, very much so. It wasn't a time of prosperity in that region. People knew the war was coming. They sensed that. So yes, he decided to move his family to Argentina. Good. So your mom, roughly how old was she when she moved to Argentina? I'm, I'm going to say five or six or seven. I, I honestly don't know. Just know that it was primary school time and she went to two schools. Gotcha. She's now in Argentina. What happens to her and her family there? Well, they moved to Santa Fe, which is a province, but there's also a city called Santa Fe. And, and now the city today is very big, but in, at that time it was extremely small. And that's where my mother considers home. Hmm. She's always spoken as Santa Fe. She's Santa Fecina. And if you listen to her speak Spanish, she speaks with that accent. She drops her S's, which is something I do. And she ends up going to school there, getting educated there. Um, she will eventually do her tertiary education, partially in Santa Fe, but in Buenos Aires as well. She has a tie to Santa Fe. And when we argue and when we get on each other's case, which is something we do very well, all that Latin arguing is very true in my family. <laughs> um, I always call her Santa Fecina, and, and she has other words for me. She does not swear, though. She, she can be very good at insulting without ever swearing, and that's <laughs> impressive to me. I'm very serious. I think I've heard her swear three times, and I'm not exaggerating. So she'll tell me why everything is wrong with Buenos Aires and, you know, back and forth. So that's where she felt she was home. Things went extremely well for my grandfather there. And my mother, as she won't admit it, but grew up pretty spoiled, <laughs> if, you might, if I may say that. You may. 
<laughs> that brings us back to your mom now. So she's happy in Argentina, in Santa Fe. Oh, she's very happy in Argentina and Santa Fe. She really talks about it consistently. And, and I've had the pleasure of taking her on trips and we go visit some of her uh, schoolmates and we go to her school and she gets really emotional. I mean, she'll start crying about it and that she's not like that overall, but it really touches her heart. You can see she's home. So yeah, she's very happy in Santa Fe. When I first met your mother, it was in northern New Jersey in the 1970s. How did she get there from being very happy in Santa Fe, Argentina? Well, <laughs> you know, to this day, I don't know how my parents met. My mother told me she wrote it down that she, and I'll be able to read it the day she passes. But I can tell you certain things. Eventually, as the business grew, they, my grandfather moved to Buenos Aires. His goal was always to go back to Italy. So my mother, somewhere along the way, she meets my dad, who was, he's from Milano, but my dad crossed over. I mean, he knows Milano, but his life was really made in Argentina. He meets my mom, they get married, and they have me. My father was an engineer. Ironically, my mother was like me in school. <laughs> Did everything to get out of any bit of work possible. <laughs> My dad, however, was a bookworm. And it's so funny because, of course, as you've known me, James, it's, it's not schooling wasn't my greatest <laughs> strength. <laughs> so they get together, they get married, and my dad has a passion for science. He could take anything and make something out of it. And my mother knew this. And for four years, my father worked in my mother's family business. And he said, you know what? I, I can't do this. The thought was that after the war, Argentina would be a hub for science. But it turned out that for many reasons that the United States became a hub for science. So they decide to move to the United States. 22 days after I was born, was on an airplane to the United States. I can't tell you I remember any of that flight <laughs> because I don't. We go to New York City, as many people have. As an immigrant, what do you do? You take any job. My father was a plumber. He worked in the sewers of New York. My mother worked in the garment district sewing. And along the way, as my father's looking for work in his field, he gets an offer to go to Australia. And as he's about to accept that offer, someone who knew someone who knew someone said, you know, this guy's living in New York. You want to hire him? They offer him a job in engineering. So rather than picking up the family and moving to Australia, which we were about to do, we stayed in New York. I actually did my kindergarten in New York, but my mother starts missing Argentina greatly. So my father says, we'll move back. We move back. My father works with, in my grandfather's business, and I do my primary education there. But his love was science. And my mother knew his love was science. She starts realizing the things about the United States that she likes, and we move back to the United States. But in a typical immigrant story, my father goes first, spends six months working for a company in New York City, but because it was expensive, he ends up moving to some unheard of place called Caldwell, New Jersey. <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> Never heard of it. Well, to make it all very short, I eventually end up in Caldwell, New Jersey, where, of course, I met 
people such as yourself. Yes, indeed. And so glad that I did meet you, Gus. It was my pleasure as well. Your mom is now after born in Italy, moving to Argentina, back to Italy briefly, back to Argentina, to New York, back to Argentina, then up to Caldwell, New Jersey. Your mom was pretty flexible and resilient, wasn't she? Extremely. And she has been and she is to this day. I have to say that that's inspired me. You know, one thing she told me in 2008, I went to China and I got an email from her and she was asking me how I liked it. I said, you know, I've always wanted to see the Great Wall and today I did and it was just moving. And she said, you know, I really feel badly. I never gave you a stable home. And I said, oh, don't ever say that because what you did is you put a passion in me to just travel and move and see anything I can possibly see. And my dad always reminded me of this. Without your mother, we don't have a family. She keeps everything in order. And I think about that and I think, wow, their love and, and their working together was really very, very strong. I'm repeating myself, but my dad continuously told me about any success he had would have never happened without her because she really was the groundwork. To hear that your dad recognized that and didn't just expect it, that he appreciated it and knew that she was really holding it together. What's really impressive to me, she was very, very demanding that I'd not forget Spanish. And I really could not care less about Spanish. <laughs> you know, it's behind me now. And she said, with your attitude, as lazy as you are, Spanish is going to be the one thing that's going to give you a job. And, you know, back then I thought, oh, this woman is so crazy. Leave me alone. And how right she was. Mm. And ironically, today, we tell immigrants, do everything you can to keep your language. Where at that time, they were telling us, just learn English. Well, my mother didn't have anything against me learning English. I went to a Cambridge school in Argentina. She knew that it was going to be an, it was an important language then. We know what the language is today, but she really wanted me to keep that. So, so she made that very clear. You need this. And it's also part of who you are. Uh, she also prepared me for travel. The one story I've told a thousand times you know, I have a love for football, association football. So when we left Argentina for the second time, I was a little older and I had this maddening passion for Boca Juniors. And she said to me, okay, Gustavo, we're going to go to the United States. They don't play football, but they play baseball. Now, I didn't know that she had had such a tie with the Brooklyn Dodgers when we lived in New York the first time. And she said, now, you may not know anything about baseball, but we're going to a place where it's king. And I think you'll like it. So try and like it. And of course, as it turned out, I moved up next to uh, George Bussy Hamill, who was a fanatical Yankee fan. And he would talk me so much about baseball. And I'm so grateful to him. But the fact that my mother did that, I've talked with many immigrants and they've never had that. She had that foresight. At the time, you don't appreciate it and you feel badly that you don't now. But I do realize that you talked about her resiliency, but she also was able to, to instill that in both my dad and myself. Oh, that's fantastic. Gus, do you have any favorite memories growing up in your house? Any stories that you can relate about your mom? Oh, I have plenty. <laughs> I think it shows a little bit of her character. You know, one of the things I remember my first dentist meeting in Buenos Aires. Okay, now nobody likes to go to the dentist. 
but I do go. So we go to the dentist's office. We're sitting in the office and we hear this crying, this maddening crying. And, you know, as a kid listening to somebody else, you could figure out that it was a kid. I'm thinking, my goodness, they're going to kill me in there, right? And my mother had a stern, serious face and she wasn't looking at me. My mother turns to me and says, you better not cry like that because if you cry here, when we get home, I'm going to give you something to cry about. <laughs> you know, in today's world, that might be seem abusive, but it really set a tone for me. I did not cry and I've never cried at the dentist, but man, that thing hurt. Oh. So, you know, understand my mother, she didn't live World War II, but I said she, she went through revolutions. She knows what it's like to get underneath a table while bullets are flying. So these people had to be tough. As you know, your parents having lived directly the war, you know, we, we didn't live that. I break a fingernail and I cry. And, and so, you know, I, I'm pretty amazed by that. Another story that I always loved because it, it really shows the difference between my dad and my mom. So we were at James Caldwell High School. I had been given the task of writing a report on Leonardo da Vinci. And it was a year long project. Now for the more astute pupil, they work on it. <laughs> and you know that there was no way on this earth I was gonna do it, right? So then literally the night before, my mother's on the typewriter and I'm looking through the books while my father's drinking mate in, and mate is an, an Argentine tea. And all he kept saying was, how could you be like this? How could you be like this? And my mother's laughing and she's typing at everything I'm saying. And she's saying, you know, this would be a good report if you wouldn't have waited till the last minute. What was interesting is I couldn't figure out why my mother was so relaxed about it. But as I went to find out is my mother was a horrible pupil in school. <laughs> she never did anything until they, she absolutely had to. You know, so she's sitting there and she really lightened the mood. And she helped me get through that report, which I turned in the next day. You know, as a kid, I always liked to walk. My parents used to walk everywhere. Sometimes when I'd walk home from school with my mom, it seemed like it was so long. And she would say, no, don't think of the whole trip. Just see that tree over there, okay? That's about 100 meters away. When you get there, you can celebrate, enjoy that. Even though I was cold, I would stop thinking about being cold and suddenly the trip would go. She had really a terrific way of simplifying everything. She's really a true teacher. There's so much wisdom in that. It's like, look for small milestones. Mm -hmm. If you can just look for that next tree, celebrate when you get to that tree, as opposed to looking at the whole picture and getting discouraged and walking away from it. Wouldn't you say that's uh, the wisdom she was trying to impart on you? Oh, very much so. Very much so. And it's really helped me. As you know, James, my first university experience didn't go well. And when I went back, those words, that wisdom that she gave me has really helped me. And now as I try to continue my studies, when I want to take the computer and throw it out the window, I just stop and remember that. And I look at the 20 meters in front of me. But the story I, I want to share with you that has stayed with me all my life and I've shared it a million times goes back to Buenos Aires. Because to me, Buenos Aires is part of who I am. So we're in this park. My mother's sitting with some of her friends and I'm playing with some kids. The park's divided into a walking path. It has a garden, and the garden is not supposed to be walked in. And then there was an area where you could play football and basketball. And, you know, I was always kind of a, a strange kid because I was always out of place. So when people dared me to do things, I was stupid enough to do it. 
So the groundsman is cleaning up, riding on his lawnmower. He's working on the garden and somebody says, hey, go bug the old guy, right? And when you're young, everybody seems old. No, no, man, don't do that. You'll get in trouble. And of course, I had to prove my manhood. I said, sure, I'll go and do it. So I went and ran up to the guy and bugged him, yelling. He says, you're not supposed to run in the garden. Ah, shut up. I don't care. So he gets off the lawnmower and starts chasing me. So what do I do? I go running behind my mother. He stops in front of my mother. And my mother keeps having her conversation for a little bit. And then she looks up and says, yes, sir, how may I help you? And the gentleman tells my mother what happened. That moment, I'm thinking my mother's going to protect me. And she says, sir, I've taught my son that if he's man enough to get in trouble, he better be man enough to take the consequences. And I don't remember what happened after that, but I was so scared. That lesson, and although I had to test that lesson many times in my life, has really stuck with me. In that moment, I wish I could remember what happened, but I do remember being extremely scared and the calmness with which she said it. And what a lesson to teach. That was such great wisdom. And can you just talk a little about your mom's character? Well, she can be extremely stubborn, which drives me absolutely up the wall. <laughs> she can be combative. I don't know why she does that, but I have the same bad trait. She's also extremely intelligent. And what bothers me is she doesn't always show it. You know, she'd rather just sit there and say, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I don't know if that comes from her background or not. She is not a hard worker until she has to be. Like I said, in school, she did nothing until she had to. It was fun to get together with her old classmates and they'd say, man, she'd always get the best marks out of all of us, but she never did any work. She knew when she had to work. And even today, she's like that. So I think she's, she has a very strong character. One of the things she taught me is you must learn every rule. You must learn why that rule exists. And once you know that, then you can try to change it. So she gets someplace and she's not, she doesn't tend to hit the ground running. She tends to hit the ground with the ear on the ground, mm. which is something that I don't do and I could have learned from her. She has had a very high bred education, but she really doesn't follow any of those rules. You know? She loves to communicate with people. I've tried to stay in touch with people and that really comes from her. She was always writing letters to everybody. I've been able to communicate with your mom via WhatsApp I know she's a little rusty on her English, but I'm nobody to talk because anything other than English, I just sort of smile and nod my head and pretend <laughs> to, to understand what's being said. I love what you said about keeping your ear to the ground and that she was one who did that. And that's to kind of learn what it is that's in place before you try to change it. This way, if you are going to affect change and you want change, you're informed. Gus, I want to ask you another question. How would you say that having your mom as your mom impacted your life and the person you are today? First of all, both her and my dad made me a man. They really guided me in a direction that said, you know, you have to be good to people. Mm -hmm. I haven't always been good to people, but they pushed me forward in that. You have to listen to people. You have to be thankful for everything you have. She wasn't the greatest cook. She learned to become a good cook. 
And what she always said to me is, you know, remember you have food. That was not just something you said, it really means something. I've been to places where people don't have water. So that she put in me, she really helped make me a man. She really instilled in me the idea of being a teacher. I had never considered being a teacher, but as I started doing it, I started realizing how wonderful of a profession it was. But she also taught me that I should learn to respect money, but never make it my God. You'll have the money you need to survive in life, but you don't need to make that your God. And it's, it's something that I, I still carry with me today. She really instilled in me the idea of not quitting. One of the things that she would say to me, she goes, okay, before you decide to do this, think about it, because I'm not going to let you quit. You only have to do it this amount of time, whatever that amount of time is. And for me, there were a lot of sports I tried and I was terrible at sports, but I couldn't quit. You know, you have to play that season and then you learn from it. And then you decide next year, well, how you're going to make it different or do something else. And that's something that I'm really grateful for. I also am still to this day, really amazed at how much she cares about me. I'm still to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm lost for words. I, I'm really impressed by, I don't feel like I deserve it because I feel very blessed and very fortunate for having her by my side. That's a wonderful story. Just to clarify for our listeners, you live in Budapest, Hungary right now, and your mom lives where? Buenos Aires, Argentina. Yes. And your mom is how old now? 96. Wow. Gus, what do you think your mom would want her legacy to be? Whew. You know, I've heard you ask this question to all your guests. <laughs> and when you suggested that we meet, I was thinking, how on this earth am I going to answer this question? Boy, I don't know. I really like to think that let me start by saying this. We were with some friends, most of them were women, and we were discussing women's situations throughout our lifetime. She would being the oldest, uh, the youngest woman there was 25. And she's made it very clear, you know, I'm very happy all of you are chasing your dreams. What I want to defend for the women like me who were predominantly housewives, because during periods of recent history, the housewife has been put down. And she said, our work was very, very important. And it is very important. So wrapping it up, I guess she would like to be known as a housewife. Her role was that and she was always very proud of that. I always came home to a mom, you know. Gus, I want to thank you. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you very much. And it was an absolute pleasure. Okay, bye bye. I'd now like to welcome Anthony and Neil Lentine to our show. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us. Great. Well, we're here to talk about your mom, who was an absolutely amazing lady. So I'm going to start with a question for Neil. Can you tell us about your mom's background? Where was she born, grew up, siblings? What do you know about her early life? So she grew up in Newark, New Jersey, actually on the same street, Summer Avenue, as my dad's family down the road, believe it or not. So as they, they were growing up, the families knew each other, but she grew up in Newark and she was one of actually seven children, three uh, brothers, older brothers, and she was the youngest, obviously. And she had three sisters, one who actually passed away when she was very young, but basically one of seven children, and she was the youngest of, of all of them. And they grew up in Newark, 
And eventually when they got married, my dad and my mom, they moved to Stanhope, New Jersey. That's where they started their lives in raising myself and, and Anthony for a couple of years. And then they moved to Caldwell. Do uh, either one of you can answer this. Do you know much about what life was like for her growing up with all those kids in Newark? I'm sure there wasn't a lot of money to go around at the time. Do, do you know of any stories that she told about those days? Anthony, do you know of any? You're right about the money, for sure. They didn't have a lot of money. They lived in a small place for seven kids and two adults. But other than that, she, they didn't talk a lot about, you know, at very young age more about like when they're teenagers and things like that, but not at the very young ages. We didn't hear much about that at all. I think I remember hearing, Anthony, that at least one of her, if not more of your mom's brothers fought in World War II. They all three did, yes. All three were in World War II. I would imagine as a little sister that she was probably worried about them. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting about you know, my mom being the youngest of all of them, and I can't remember the age gap. The age gap to the oldest uh, sibling brother was at least 15 years, maybe maybe more. I mean, it was a big gap there. So, you know, she was very young when they were in the war. So uh, I imagine she was very worried. And it's probably, you know, the reason why as she grew older, she always worried a lot. That's always been a worrier about that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that had a large impact on her when her brothers went off to war. Anthony, do you recall hearing how your parents met in Newark? They grew up in a neighborhood together. So they were friends way before they, they started dating. They, they hung around in like a group of people and they used to go out together in groups, you know, like a group dates, you know, and that's how they met through people we call aunts as growing up, like my Aunt Carol and my Aunt Marie. And those were, they were really a close knit group of friends at the time. And then they just grew closer, I guess. And they were very young when they got married too. So throughout their teenage years, this is the stories we used to hear what their life was like, dad played baseball and things like that. And so we didn't hear much about before that, but th that's how they met though in the neighborhood. They just grew up in the neighborhood together. So you mentioned about after your parents got married, they briefly moved to Stanhope, New Jersey? Yeah, my Aunt Mary uh, had lived there. And when, when my dad and mom got married, she you know uh, recommended they move to that area to be closer to her because they were the closest. My Aunt Mary and my, and my mom were probably the closest of all the siblings. So they moved to the same town. Uh, but they only stayed there for a couple of years, and then they moved to Caldwell shortly after that. Were you both born while they were living in Stanhope? Yes. Yes. Anthony, can you recall some of your favorite stories about your mom growing up? The ones that stick out in my mind are, and there's many of them, because she was very good to us all the time. I mean, she's very, almost too good sometimes. We got, we got away with murder when we were kids. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was a disciplinarian, but, you know, it just didn't, you know, didn't hold any water. <laughs> She's too nice about it. But she would always, if we were interested in something, we'd always try to find a way to get it for us. And, you know, you know and, and I don't know how they did it. They didn't have any money. They both didn't even graduate high school. We never knew we didn't have any money, you know, growing up. But one of the biggest memories for me is, is that I used to wait till they fell asleep at night. And then I would sneak out into the living room put the TV on, right? And just to sit there with the TV, you know, really low and watch the late movies all the time. I often would just fall asleep on the floor right there in front of the TV. And my mom would say, you know, you can't do this. So I remember one night I, I was waiting for them to go to sleep and I, I actually fell asleep a little bit and then I woke up and I went out to the living room and there was a pillow and a blanket there. 
<laughs> waiting for me. <laughs> so she just, she gave up, you know, she figured, okay, he loves watching the movies. Let's make him comfortable at least, you know? And that's how she was. Do whatever she could to give us what we wanted, even though they didn't have anything to do that with. That's the kind of woman she was. Anthony, when you were growing up, was your mom working most of that time or some of that time? Yeah, when we moved to Caldwell, we were very young. You know, Neil was not even in school yet. I don't remember if she worked that young when we were that. I don't think so, no. But we were older, and I was like old enough to walk Neil to school and walk him back and things like that. She got a part-time job, yeah, at Food Town. Worked there for what, 25, maybe even 30 years. I don't even know. It's a long time. Neil, what are some of the memories that stick out in your mind when you think of your mom? Yeah, my, my brother hit the nail on the head with regard to her, you know, her kindness and being always good to us and not having a lot when we grew up, but you never knew it. But the, the biggest memory I remember, she was always open to and always wanted to like play games with us. Like one of those cards, it was a board game. And my dad was never into that kind of stuff. He worked three jobs, so it was tough. But but card games and solitaire and gin rummy, anything we wanted to do. And matter of fact, to this day, my kids and, and even my wife and I played Jim Rummy and, and my mom taught me how to play it. So she was very good that way to entertain us because, you know, we, we lived in a small apartment. We didn't have a lot to do back in the day and, and she entertained us that way. That was one of my biggest memories about her wanting to play games with us all the time. And of course her cooking, right? She was always cooking for us and the Sunday dinners and the, the pasta and the meatballs. Those are my fondest memories. And really, if you think about it, it's kind of like that unconditional love that is hard to explain. She never was cross with us, right? I mean, she, you know, she'd get mad, but at the end of the day, as we got older, never had a bad word to say about anybody. You know, those are my deepest memories of my mom. And again, the word I'll use is unconditional love. And it's really true. You know, she didn't expect anything in return. Wow. Anthony, Neil mentioned food. When you think of your mom and food, what are some of the thoughts that come to your mind? Oh, I mean, I don't ever remember her ever making anything I didn't like. Right? It was crazy. Her, her cooking was so good. Neil and his friends used to drive from Ryder University an hour and a half just to have Sunday dinner, you know, and then drive an hour and a half back. And they'd all, of course, would have a, a tray of chicken parm to bring back with them, you know. <laughs> so it was a three-hour drive, but it was worth it. And you were at a, a, a number of our Sunday dinners, and who knows how many people were at our Sunday dinners over the years. And with like no recipe cards whatsoever. I mean, you know, just like everything was in, you know, in her head. You know, a pinch of this. I mean, I, she would cook on Saturday for Sunday. She'd be making the gravy and the meatballs. You could smell it all day on, on the weekend. And you know, it's just like, anytime I smell gravy cooking now, I think about her. Because you know, she'd always save a couple of meatballs on the side while she's cooking on Saturday for me to eat. <laughs> anytime we eat dinner. You think of my mom, you know, no matter where, anytime we have Sunday dinner and Neil and Chris carried on that tradition after mom passed, thank you again. And it was just fantastic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask Neil, what, what's your favorite dish that your mom cooked? <laughs> There's so many. Anthony mentioned chicken parm. It's always a big deal. Lasagna, you know, Madagascar, you know, all, all the, all the pastas. So and, you know, the meatballs too, right? So, you know, that was really the, the signature dish. And then she tried towards the end of her life to teach the, the grandchildren and the in-laws how to cook the meatballs. Yes, I would say most of the pastas were my favorite and the meatballs. Anthony, your favorite? Yeah, I think the pasta meals. I mean, we had a lot of that growing up and she used to make very inventive with thinking back now, you realize that 
like spinach and potatoes. We used to make this big pot of spinach and potatoes. Who knows what you put in it? It was fantastic. Just spinach and potatoes. And you think like, you know, big deal, but garlic, I mean, the, you know, the whole sauce. And it was like, just dunk the bread in it. And that was one of my favorites, I think. That was probably my favorite meal. Yeah. Neil, what did Sunday dinners mean to you? Yeah, you know, Anthony mentioned it before. It was a time where once a week, you know, the family would get together, right? Even when it was just us four, my, my brother and I and my dad and my mom, it was, you know, a regular event. And as we got older and we start bringing home girlfriends and future wives and, and we had kids and it grew and it grew and it grew and it, it became a, a tradition. Uh, and then we brought friends over, as you know. It meant a lot to me because I think to this day, the, her grandchildren are closer because of that, right? They're connected in a way that I don't think that would have happened if we didn't have the regular cadence of, of every Sunday being together. And we didn't travel much when we were younger, right? We, we never traveled anywhere. So every Sunday we were home. That meant a lot to me. And it means a lot to me that to this day, even before I moved to Florida, as Anthony mentioned, we did it at my house on Sundays. And I miss that, right? That's the biggest thing I miss about not being in New Jersey now. Certainly a legacy of family first and that kind of was brought forward with those Sunday dinners and it, and it kind of just grew and it still does. Anthony, you want to add to that about Sunday dinners? Well, Neil said, said it perfectly. It was, she was the center of, not only because she cooked, but mom's cooking, but that's not the reason why we went there. It was just to be together, right. you know, to spend time together as a family. And like Neil said, the bigger the family got, it didn't matter. You know, the, the kitchen was, you know, a 10 by 15 and somehow we fit 20 people in there. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like one of those uh, like miracles that, you know, people would come for not just the food, but just to be there and the experience of being there was just as important. I have to add something that, first of all, your, your mom always rolled out the red carpet for not just blood family, but friends she treated as family. And I remember one time, I think Kelly was away with one of my daughters or two of my daughters and my daughter, Jen and I were invited over to your house. They tucked us into that little kitchen behind the table. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe, first of all, that you could, it was like a clown car. I couldn't believe you could fit that many people into that kitchen. <laughs> and the food that just kept coming out of the oven, Jen and I both appreciate a good meal and it was just wonderful, but more so than the food was the conversation. Maybe even an argument or two broke out. It was an all Never. good fun. Never happened. <laughs> <laughs> Italian family, it's impossible to go through a dinner without one argument. <laughs> you made it work in there. Your mom made it work. There's many people you could fit in there. She must have had a degree in geometry because she fits so many people into that little kitchen. But you talked about the family growing. So there were only two of you, but then your parents had six grandchildren. Let me ask you this, and I'll start with Anthony. How was your mom as a grandma? She was everything. They loved her. My mom would just do the same thing she did with us. But somehow they found a way to, to buy them things and give them things. And she's been gone almost 14 years now. And my kids talk about her every time we're together. You know, Grandma Lentine would have loved this or she would have loved that. She's still alive in the room all the time. Neil, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, as Anthony mentioned before, the unconditional love for Anthony and I was always there uh, as we got older and as, as adults and even, you know, the grandchildren, you know, they could never do any wrong and she was always treating them very kindly. I think the thing that gets me the most is that when I look at all the grandchildren, every one of them, 
there's a part of her in every one of them, just in their kindness, the way they treat people, the way they're accepting the people. And that came from my mom. It's a testament to the way she raised kids and the way she dealt with kids. You know, Anthony mentioned early on that she wasn't a disciplinary and she wasn't tough. But you know what, though? I think, you know, in a lot of ways, our kids are the way they are because of her and, uh, and her kindness and her love and, and uh, love of family. That's what I remember most about her and, and her, uh, her grandchildren, quite frankly. Now, with Anthony and I, she was always, you know, a great parent, but I saw it shine with, with the kids. And it's a shame that she couldn't see all of them grow up. Yeah. Definitely. I have to ask this question too, because I always ask this about people when they're talking about a family member, particularly a parent. I'll start with Anthony. What were Christmases like, particularly when you had kids, when you had your own kids, both of you, what did she do at Christmas time? Well, Christmas was huge with her. She loved decorating for Christmas. We had so many different Christmas trees. You know, she always tried to like every year have something different and, and it just continued with the kids. I remember when my oldest daughter is the first grandchild and her second Christmas, she was a little over a year old and the room was filled with presents from everybody. It was so many presents that she actually cried. She didn't want to open any more presents. <laughs> and that's how she was. Again, somehow they found the money to buy these things for them. I don't know where it came from, but because they didn't make a lot of money, she always made it special all the time. The decorations with the you know, stuff in the stockings. And, you know, every year was the same thing. You never expected anything else from her. It's always, always good. Wonderful memories. Neil, you want to add to that about Christmas? Yeah, it wasn't just Christmas, Jim. And, you know, what's interesting is you mentioned Christmas, which was always a big deal in, in the Lentine household. Uh, Christmas Eve actually was the, was the big day for us. But, you know, any holiday, we, we used to show up at the house with, with the kids, with our kids, when they were younger, whether it was Easter, there was baskets sitting there for them. It was Halloween. It was a little bucket of something. And it was always this special way of like, when you walked in around a holiday, the kids knew that something special was going to be there and, and they looked forward to it. And, and as they got older, she did the same thing. You know, she did with cards, a little bit of money here and there. And so it was always a big deal for her around the holidays to be with family and to treat family well. It wasn't just Christmas, although Christmas was a big deal. It was every holiday with her and the kids, which made it special for our kids and Anthony's kids as well. Anthony, if I were to ask you how your life was impacted most by having the mom that you had, how would you answer that? I think that she's the best part of all of us in some way. And I think that the biggest impact she had on me was that no matter what happened in life, everything was always going to be okay. Yeah. She always made you feel like everything's going to be okay. Hopefully I'm passing the same thing down to my kids because, you know, you go through things in life and it's not always uh, good. But we've always picked ourselves up and moved forward. Well, thank you. That's a, she imparted that. It's going to be all right. A positive attitude. Don't worry. Yeah, even though she worried all the time. <laughs> that was her job. She was taking that over for you. Yeah. <laughs> but somehow she made you feel that she, she like took the worry on herself. She made you feel it was going to be okay. Sort of a selfless uh, attitude. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Neil, you want to add to that? You know, Anthony said it well regarding, you know, the kindness and, and the, the love and all that. But I also remember her being so hardworking, you know, she, as Anthony mentioned, took a part-time job when we were in elementary school or whatever it was. She walked there back and forth because she didn't have a license. She'd be home after school to greet us there and cook dinner and clean the dishes and do the laundry. And I think the work ethic that she had, it kind of rubbed off on me too, right? You know, making sure you're always working hard for what you need and what you want for your family. 
I mentioned it again, I keep on saying it, but I, I don't recall ever being with a person who never had a bad thing to say about anybody. You know, I just don't remember her talking bad about people. You know, she wanted to be kind and, and loving. And I think that rubbed off on me and Anthony, both of us. I can only wish that I can be as kind as she was. The most amazing thing, Jim, and I would never compare my mother to our savior, right? Yeah, but she died on Good Friday. It really hit me hard when she died on Good Friday. It's like, you know, the sacrifices she made for us as kids, it was really uh, kind of surreal. That's how I felt about her. She, you know, always sacrificed for us. And as Anthony mentioned, the, the kind part of us that comes from her, I think. And my dad was a great person too, don't get me wrong, but my mom was the, was the lover of the family. Mm. That's for sure. Wow. What powerful memories you have of your mom and how she impacted your lives. Anthony, what would you think your mom would have wanted her legacy to be? Well, I think Neil said it earlier, family, family first. Neil and I grew up in a 10 by 12 bedroom for 25 years. I mean, you know, we were close all the time. And so were our whole family together. It just, that's what she put into us, you know, family first and an acceptance of everybody, no matter what. That's another thing. You know, she never, like Neil, I don't ever remember she ever criticized anything we ever, we ever did. Never. Not once in my life do I remember her making me feel bad about anything. Yeah. And that's astounding. I can't say it as a parent that I did that that well. She has never, somehow, never criticized. And I think that would be her biggest legacy, just not to, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Thank you for that, Anthony. Neil, what can you add? Yeah, well said by my brother. He, you know, he hit all the high points. And, and I always remember when, when my brother and I occasionally would get in a scuffle, right? We would fight occasionally. I think you were witness to some of that over the years. <laughs> but, you know, we would get into a scuffle and we'd be beating, the, you know, what of each other and, and screaming and yelling. And, and she would pull us apart and she'd say, and she'd get really emotional. And she'd say, hey, you know what? When I'm gone, all you guys are going to have is your, each other. Be nice to each other. Every time we got in a fight, that was her thing. It wasn't like breaking it up. wasn't like punishing us. It was like, don't, don't do that because it's all you have is each other eventually. As it turns out, not only do we have each other, we have a family that has grown around us. And, and my mom has been a part of that, right? And made us uh, feel that way. So yeah, family first is her legacy, I think, more than anything. And, and, and she was a tremendously hard worker. I can't imagine how our lives would have been if she was a mom who didn't really you know, care about uh, you know, giving us everything we, we needed when we needed it. So definitely family first. Well, I'm so glad you guys both took the time out to talk about your mom. I knew your mom for many years. And when you say that she never had anything bad to say about anybody, she also was one who always made friends feel like family. I felt that for sure. And I know that whenever I would be in, in an environment where there was a family get together, where we were invited, that I felt like I had a seat at the table as family. And she always made me feel that way. And then anytime I saw her, she would ask how I was doing. And it wasn't just a, how you doing? It was, how are you doing? Like she wanted to know how I was. And she would ask about my parents who she may have only met a couple of times. She really cared. And I think you're just confirming what I always saw. And you both know her the best. She was, I can say, a wonderful woman who still impacts my life with her love of family. And I tell you, I came from a small family like you. I have just one brother. 
And I lost my parents uh, quite a while ago. I was my dad a long time ago. And my wife and I and my kids used to love being just a part of the Lentine family. And I know your mom, well, you, you guys as well with your families, but your mom was sort of the, the center point of that family. And I miss her too. I just want to say to both of you, thank you so much for your time and for telling us about a wonderful woman on this Mother's Day. Thanks, James. Okay, guys, take care. Have a good day. You too. I'd now like to introduce my next guest, my seven-year-old grandson, Hudson Paworski. Welcome to our show, Hudson. Thank you. Thank you. Hudson, I want to ask you about your mom. What can you tell us about your mom? She's really beautiful, and yesterday she did get a haircut. I haven't seen her, so I don't know what the haircut looks like, but I hope it looks good. Oh, I guess she left this morning before you got up, huh? Yeah, so um, I don't know how it looks like, but I'm hoping it changed to white again because I like that color. Oh, terrific. You mean blonde? Yeah. And you like blonde the best? Yes. What are some of the favorite things that you do with your mom? We go on walks. My family goes on bike rides. Mom, my dad, and on me. What do you do on Friday nights? Pizza, movies. Today, my mom, like, thought it was too late for a movie, but she found, like, a show that it's called Dr. K's Exotic Animal ER. It was pretty good. You enjoyed it? Yes. Does mom take you to school? Yeah, we even so I got bunnies, so now we have like a stroller for them. So now we're walking to school, and the bunnies' names are Daisy and Duncan. Daisy is a girl, and Duncan is a boy. He's black, and then Daisy's gray. Yeah, we've been strolling with them to school. So you and mom walk together with the bunnies to school? Yes. Oh, very, very fun. What kind of things does your mom like to do? She likes to do CrossFit, and she mostly also likes jazz music. Is your mom strong? Yes, yes. I bet she is. Hudson, I understand you wrote a letter to your mom for Mother's Day. Can you read that for us, please? Dear Mommy, I want to thank you for all that you do for me. You take me to school and bring me home each day. You help me with my homework and make all my meals. I really like it when you cuddle with me, when we watch TV, and I love to make you laugh. You always make me feel loved. Happy Mother's Day. I love you. Love, Hudson. Thank you very much, Hudson. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank all of our guests today. And on behalf of Your History, Your Story, I want to wish all moms a happy and healthy Mother's Day. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com 
for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.